That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today on the show, we have Peter Singer. And you may have heard that name before because he is one of the most well-known and most influential uh, philosophers and ethicists of the 21st century. And so currently, he is the uh, DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. He is a laureate professor at the Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at the University of Melbourne. Uh, he is oftentimes uh, referred to as one of the fathers of the effective altruism movement, which is all about basically guiding our philanthropic and charitable giving to organizations that are having uh, the largest impact on uh, helping people to avoid pain, starvation, poverty around the world. Um, he really kind of was thrust into the stage with his first book uh, called Animal Liberation, which heavily promoted the ethics of a vegan diet. Um, he's uh, one of the founders of the applied ethics movement. And so much of this episode is talking about the philosophy of where we should apply our energy, attention, and action uh, when it comes to giving back, when it comes to seeing how we can contribute and help other people, and how to not only just maximize our utility, but how to find the causes and issues that are most aligned with our personal values so that we can sustainably give back and do these things. And so he's really been on the forefront of so many improving, important, massive scale uh, philanthropic efforts around the world. And he's got incredible stories, as well as obviously, you know, very practical ideas and insight uh, that can have an impact on, on how you use your energy in this part of your life. So without further ado, here is Peter Singer. All right, Peter, welcome to What's the Big Idea? How are things going down in Princeton? Uh, everything's great here. Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. And so, Peter, so tell me a little about what's most exciting in your world at the moment. The most exciting thing that's happening in my world at the moment is that I'm launching a new 10th anniversary edition of my book, The Life You Can Save. Uh, and I'm really excited not only to be releasing a fully revised and updated edition, but I'm excited about the fact that it will be free to everybody who wants to download either an ebook or an audio book completely free to be downloaded from the website of the life you can save.org and so peter so this book has been out for 10 years and as you are gearing up for the uh relaunch i'm curious you know with if your wildest dreams come true what is the impact that this book is going to have on the world and the people who are fortunate to pick up the book well, what I'm hoping for is that the impact that the book had on those who read it when it first came out will be multiplied many times by the fact that now it's available to everybody free. Uh, and when I talk about the impact it had, I know that there are many people whose lives were changed by the book, who decided to make effective giving to help people in extreme poverty one of their goals and who allocated a percentage of their income or gave significant gifts to some of the highly effective charities helping people in extreme poverty that I recommended in the book. Uh, I know that millions, tens of millions of dollars extra were, were, were given to these effective charities because of the book. But 
if I can reach a much larger audience, that tens of millions could become hundreds of millions, you know, who knows, could be, could become a, a billion dollars or more because there's a lot of people giving already to charities, but they're not giving to the ones that are really going to do the most good, the most highly effective ones. Yeah, and I'm very excited to to get back to you know the effective altruism movement and some of the organizations that are having the greatest impact and tangible insight that people can put to work as we head towards the, the holidays, Giving Tuesday. And uh, what I'd like to start with, just to really paint a, a clearer picture of how you got to this place as a philosopher who's having such a, a tangible impact in the world, alleviating poverty, is um, where did your, your path start to becoming a, a moral philosopher? Like, was there a moment in your upbringing or early life where you realized that this was the path that you were ready to step on, that this was a calling or something that you wanted to commit yourself to? I couldn't really say that philosophy itself was a calling that I had in my early life. In fact, I sort of slipped into philosophy almost by accident, uh, or a number of different accidents. I originally wanted to do law and become a lawyer. And in Australia, where I was, uh, law is an undergraduate degree. You enter it straight from high school. So when I finished high school, I applied to university to, to go to law school, and I was accepted. But as part of that process, I saw an advisor who looked at my results for the end of high school and saw that I'd done well on subjects like history and literature and suggested that I might find the law degree a little bit dry and said, why don't you do a combined law arts degree? Uh, it won't take you that much longer and you'll get a lot of other interesting things as well. So I did that. Um, I did do some history, but I also got interested in philosophy and uh, started doing that. And before I'd completed the law degree, I was offered a scholarship to do a, a graduate degree in philosophy. And I decided to take that and I went on and found that interesting and then got a further scholarship to go to Oxford, which was you know, a big thrill for an Australian uh, student and uh, to do a, a more graduate work in philosophy there. So I did that. Uh, and I was doing philosophy and I was interested in it, but I wouldn't say that it was really life-changing uh, form of philosophy at that stage. Uh, I was interested in ethics, but I wasn't really applying it very practically because at that time in philosophy, uh, philosophers were doing, were analyzing words, the meanings of words. It, it wasn't an era in which philosophy was very practical. But... Uh, after I'd been in Oxford for about a year, I just happened to have lunch with a Canadian graduate student, uh, a man called Richard Keshen, and uh, he refused to eat the meat that was offered for lunch and just had a salad. Uh, and I asked him why that was, and he said that he didn't think it was right to treat animals the way the animals that were then on my plate or whose flesh was on my plate uh, had been treated to be turned into that meat. Uh, and I was surprised by that because this is 1970. I'd never met a vegetarian who had that kind of ethical reason for being a vegetarian. Uh, I, I might have met a Hindu who was a vegetarian for religious reasons. That was not going to appeal to me. I might have met somebody who thought that meat was going to make you unhealthy, but you know, most Australians always eaten lots of meat. It seemed to me their health wasn't too bad. Um, so that wasn't compelling to me. But this was a very straightforward ethical argument, and I had to think, how does that fit with my ethical views? Uh, can I justify the way animals are treated 
And of course, I had to learn more about the way animals are treated as well, because I'd never heard of factory farming at that time. It wasn't something that was talked about, but uh, my friend Richard did know about it. So that led me to stopping eating meat, becoming a vegetarian. And that in turn led me to think about making ethics more practical, about you know, here's, here's an ethical view that seems defensible and that really can lead you to change what you eat. That's a very powerful thing. Maybe there's other areas of my life, I ask myself, where I, I'm also being ethically blind in the way that until now I was ethically blind about the way we treat animals and about the moral status of animals. So I started thinking in particular about people in extreme poverty, um, probably because just a couple of years before, there'd been this huge famine in Biafra, which was uh, a part of Nigeria that was attempting to secede. And there'd been a civil war. And there were you know, photos of starving children in the, in the newspapers and on television. And I had felt bad that I wasn't really doing anything about that. I was living comfortably. Uh, it was very disturbing photos, but I wasn't really active in, in trying to do anything to mitigate that problem. So I started thinking about that as well, um, and I decided to start donating 10% of my income, it was at that time, to uh, to Oxfam as the, the best charity that I could find that I knew of at the time, uh, and also started writing about this as well, started writing an article called Famine, Affluence, and Morality about what are the obligations of people living in affluence when there are other people suffering from famine. So, you know, that was really the, the big turning point, I think, uh, meeting uh, Richard Keshen, thinking about what I was eating, and then going from there to thinking about the way I was living, what my goals were, what I was doing for people who were, through no fault of their own, so much worse off than I am. Yeah, absolutely. And so at what point in your career were you at this point? How old were you? I would have been 24. 24. 1970, yeah. Yeah. And so how has the, the study and practice of philosophy evolved from this time when you were coming into uh, this arena to how it's currently practiced and, and explored today? Well, today, uh, practical or applied philosophy has uh, an important place within the philosophy curriculum and every philosophy department, not just in the English speaking world, but pretty much worldwide now, uh, would be teaching courses in applied or, or practical ethics uh, it's certainly something that brings in a lot of students, which is important, but it's now a, a respected part of the field. Uh, and obviously, I'm, I'm delighted by that. I, I don't know that I would have stayed in philosophy if, if there were no room for uh, practical ethics. Uh, perhaps I, I played some role in helping to establish it, but I think it was also uh, philosophy was ready for that. In the, 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 the late 60s and the 70s were a time when students were demanding relevance to their courses and philosophy did respond and did become more relevant to the interests of students and, in fact, the, the needs of the world than it had been previously. Yeah. And one of the things that we like to do on, on What's the Big Idea is, you know, oftentimes for listeners who may you know, subconsciously just they may understand what you mean with practical ethics or applied ethics, but I always love to go a little bit deeper and understand from someone who had such a major role in establishing it and become embraced. When you say applied ethics, what is it that you mean? What is that practice? Well, uh, we can divide ethics into three areas. Uh, the most uh, remote from life-changing decisions is what we call meta-ethics. That's a discussion of 
the nature of ethics. You know, when we make ethical judgments, are we referring to something that's objectively true or are we expressing our subjective tastes or judgments? Uh, and how do we you know, how do we decide that? What's the role of reasoning in ethical arguments? Those are uh, meta-ethical questions. Then there's normative ethics, which discusses theories of ethics. Uh, so utilitarianism is one theory of ethics. Uh, rights-based views might be another theory of ethics. Uh, other kinds of rule-based ethics, Kantian ethics, uh, they're diff- all different large-scale theories about what's the right thing to do. But when we come to the more practical questions, you know, how ought we to live? Is it is it okay to eat meat? Uh, what should we do? Be doing with our resources if we have more money than we need to meet our own needs? Is there something else we should be doing with that? Uh, and a whole lot of issues in bioethics that I've also worked in, like uh, is is it right for a physician to assist a patient to die if the patient makes that request and is terminally ill? Uh, questions about abortion or use of embryos, a uh, whole lot of those questions are also practical ethics. So that's that's what the field is about. It's about the, if you like, the cutting edge of ethics where the philosophy intersects with real life questions that face pretty much all of us. Yeah. And when you spoke about those those normative kind of uh, exploration of ethics, you mentioned utilitarianism. I, I, I want to ask rather than assume that your Wikipedia page is actually up to date, but it says that you identify as a hedonistic utilitarian. Is that correct? And if so, what, is, what does that mean to you? That is correct. So to start with utilitarianism, uh, utilitarianism is the view that says the right action is the one that has the best consequences for all of those affected by the action, all things considered. And uh, by the best consequences, utilitarians mean what will do the most to reduce suffering and increase happiness. Uh, now, a hedonistic utilitarian really comes from the, the Greek term uh, for pleasure. So that's essentially what I was saying. Pleasure or happiness is what we value, what we want to maximize. Suffering, misery, pain are the things that we want to minimize. There are other forms of utilitarianism or perhaps better other forms of consequentialism which include a wider set of values rather than just uh, our well-being or our welfare. But uh, I, I, I do limit values to essentially what makes people and other sentient beings like non-human animals, what makes them better off uh, and what doesn't harm them. Beautiful. Well, life goal complete. I just got philosophy 101 from Peter Sanderson. <laughs> Thank you for that, my friend. Great. And, uh, and again, you know, so you have this, this book that came out 10 years ago, The Life You Can Save. And I, I want to move back into, uh, you know, extreme poverty, global poverty. And you talked about the famine. Was it Nigeria? Uh, yes, that was during the Nigerian Civil War, during the Biafran secession. Yeah. And, and so what was it, you know, you talked about that moment when you were with your Canadian friend and this light bulb turned off and you hadn't seen it. So was there a similar shift in your mindset when you first experienced uh, or witnessed extreme poverty um, in terms of your call to get involved, to alleviate, um, support that, that issue? Well, I'm ashamed to say that I was aware of extreme poverty and of the consequences of that particular famine uh, before I actually started doing something about it, you know, some time before. So there was a 
there was a lapse that I regret now when I, I didn't, the light bulb didn't go on. I mean, I, I saw it, but you know, the problem was everybody else saw it as well. This was headline news everywhere. And people, including myself, were really just doing tokenistic, symbolic sorts of gestures to um, put a few coins in a tin or something like that. Uh, we were not really thinking very hard either about how much we could and, and should donate, nor even about the effectiveness of this. We weren't getting evidence about what's what's really the best thing to do in this situation and uh, where are the organizations that are doing the most good going to get the most value out of our donations. And was that really the, the introduction of the effective altruism movement as it's known? Or? Well, uh, really two stages. So I did then, uh, after I became vegetarian and started thinking about what I should be doing about extreme poverty, I did start donating 10% of my income to Oxfam, which I was in Oxford and Oxfam stands for the, originally meant the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief. Um, so it, it was a committee that started in Oxford and it still had, certainly at that time, its headquarters in Oxford. So I went to their offices and talked to them about what they were doing. They seemed convincing about the good that they were doing and I started donating to them. Um, the idea of getting real evidence about the effectiveness of different organizations only developed much later. Uh, and in fact, you know, really to make that information readily available and updated, I think it required the internet to get people to be able to do that. So, so that started just around the time or a little bit before that I published the first edition of The Life You Can Save, uh, say uh, 2007 or something like that, when an organization called GiveWell got started and started doing serious research in assessing the impact of organizations. Uh, so the effective altruism movement also started around that time. It's, it's, it's maybe 10 to 12 years old at the moment. So for quite a long time, I was giving and continued to give um, mainly to Oxfam. And uh, I think Oxfam was turned out to be a reasonable choice. There are certainly other choices now that I make as well. I don't only give to Oxfam, but uh, it's, it's a, I think, a reasonably effective organization. But I didn't really have the evidence for comparing it with other possibilities uh, for many years until others started doing that research. And, you know, one thing that struck me, Peter, as you were talking about, you know, almost looking back and, and regretting how you had not fully paid attention to the famine that was happening. And I'm curious is that for the people who are, you know, listening to this podcast, and so you've got thousands of people all over the world, and there's obviously these, you know, events taking place in the world of extreme suffering and poverty and you know, child mortality and war. And how do you speak to the people who ask the question, what is it that I should be focusing on? How can I focus on all of it? Where people are very much in their own experience, dealing with their own issues, their own problems. So what do you say to that person who says, like, how, how can I genuinely care about everything? Do I need to? What, what do you say to that person? I think you should really try to do the most good that you can with whatever resources you have available. Those resources might be money. Most people in affluent countries can spare some money because we buy things that we obviously don't really need. We, we buy bottled water when the water that comes out of the tap is free. We travel. We spend on vacations. We change our clothes because they've gone out of fashion. Uh, you know, So most of us have some spare money, but also some of us have 
much more time than, than money. We can volunteer and do things. Some of us have particular skills we can use to help on these causes. Uh, but I do think you need to focus. Um, and it's good to look around, think about what's the best thing to focus on. Uh, I focused primarily on the two areas we've already talked about, on reducing the suffering of non-human animals and on helping people in extreme poverty. Uh, I think they're both important causes where you can get a, a lot of bang for your buck. They're, they're both causes where there are real low-hanging fruit still to be picked. You can make breakthroughs. You can make a difference. Um, in terms of, of uh, people in extreme poverty, I might have given the impression that, uh, you know, so I mentioned that famine in Biafra, and uh, that that really it's it's these emergency situations where where people need help. But that would be a mistake. Uh, and sometimes, in fact, in these emergency situations, just because they get a lot of headlines, uh, there are a lot of organizations that get funds and they all rush in there and uh, the resources are not used as effectively as they can be in other areas where there's an ongoing situation and organizations can learn over time what really works and what doesn't. So, for example, take malaria. There are parts of the world where children still die from malaria. Nearly a million children I think, die every year still from malaria. And that's preventable. If you give people bed nets, families have bed nets, they can sleep under them. Um, they get protected from the mosquitoes. They're much less likely to get malaria, much, much less likely to die from malaria. So that's an ongoing situation where we've been able to run randomized controlled trials to show how well bed nets work, how many lives they save, and to develop the best and most cost-effective techniques for distributing those bed nets, educating people and using them, and, and saving lives. So situations like that are often actually better places to donate to. Uh, you know, that particular example, uh, I recommend the Against Malaria Foundation, which is a very lean organization, small number of employees, mostly local people distributing the bed nets, um, and, uh, but good auditing and good checking that everything is working. So uh, I think it's good to get to know some of those charities. You can look at them at the website of thelifeyoucansave.org um, and then uh, you know, decide what you want to do and then get to know those charities and the work they're doing. And, and Peter, one thing I'm curious about here is you know, within the effective altruism uh, movement, how do we quantify the success of these things? Because you had talked about utilitarianism, the idea of you know, reducing suffering, uh, minimizing pain, but also kind of magnifying happiness. And is there is there a hierarchy? Like, does one come before the other, the reducing suffering before magnifying happiness? You know, and it's it's interesting. Of like, I'm currently reading a book just about kind of like the progress of society and the rise of you know some of these more subjective well being related things like mental health and the decrease in friendships and um, and, and you know more suicides amongst young people and things like that. And so I'm curious. Um, when we think about like the efficacy of, of these programs, do we is there a priority or a hierarchy in terms of which one we try to alleviate or, or impact first? Well, generally, I think we can do more to relieve suffering than we can to promote happiness, and we, we can do it at lower cost. Uh, I think that's because it's easier to know the causes of relieving suffering. It's easy to know some of the conditions that make people's lives less good. Obviously, having a child die of malaria 
uh, is something sure. that's that's bad. Um, various diseases that cause suffering. Uh, blindness is another thing that makes people's lives less good, especially if they become blind in a low-income country where, uh, let's say, they develop cataracts and they can't afford to get their cataracts removed, although it's a very simple procedure that everybody in an affluent country would have done. Uh, the, these are examples of uh, low-cost interventions that I think clearly make people's lives better. Um, possibly treating depression, you mentioned mental illness, so possibly treating depression is another cause of, of great suffering and we can make people's lives better if we can provide low-cost treatment. Uh, and there's an organization called Strong Minds that is doing that in Africa. Uh, on the other hand, trying to make people who are not suffering from any of these specific causes, trying to make them happier isn't that easy. Uh, we are trying things and it's really good that we're trying and that we're learning more about how to do this. But in our present state of knowledge, um, I wouldn't say that there's sort of surefire, low-cost ways of making people who are already sort of at an average level of well-being or happiness, uh, making them happier still. Yeah, I just had actually yesterday on the podcast a man named Bob Roth. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's the executive director of the uh, David Lynch Foundation, so promoting mm -hmm. trans transcendental meditation and doing a lot of research in terms of how they they can apply that to, to decrease things like PTSD in soldiers and also increase objective well-being and, and focus and well-being in, in kind of youth around the world, which is interesting. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating kind of exploration. And, and when you talk about your own interest here in terms of where you're allocating most of your, your energy and your giving towards animal welfare and extreme poverty, um, is there anything to be considered for someone who's listening in terms of what it is that they're personally most drawn to? Or is the question they should be asking, what is the most good? But if we look at someone who say has been impacted by a specific cause, maybe that was domestic violence or something like that, is there any sort of consideration for the the personal, the individual's call to give to have an impact that should be considered in this conversation, or is it purely the utilitarian lens that you think will have the greatest impact? I think when people have personal connections to issues that get them interested in it and get them looking at it, uh, there is certainly a place for that. There's a place for acting on that, um, but. I don't think it should be the only thing that we think about in terms of our, uh, what we're doing to make the world a better place because quite often that will be something where there are already a lot of resources going into it. So take, for example, breast cancer research. Uh, there are many people who have somebody who's died of breast cancer who they love and they think, I want to help stop this disease that killed this person who I was so close to. Uh, and so I'll contribute to, to research in that area. But precisely because breast cancer is a disease that kills people in affluent countries, there's already a lot of money going into research on, on breast cancer. Uh, and the difference that further donations will make uh, is likely to be fairly marginal. Whereas if you take um, neglected tropical diseases, uh, I mentioned malaria, for instance, and, and as well as the bed nets, there are also efforts to try to prevent malaria through giving certain drugs during the peak malaria season. Uh, there are other things that people are working on. And because malaria doesn't really affect people in rich countries, unless they travel and then they can afford to take drugs that are too expensive for people in 
low-income countries. So there's not as much, or there hasn't been as much. Bill Gates is actually on top of this, and so he's made a significant difference the amount of money going into malaria research. But but there are other there are other neglected tropical diseases where there's very little money going into it. Until recently, Ebola was one where there was very little money going into it. Now, because we had this scare that Ebola might spread to affluent countries, we had a couple of cases here in the US where people had traveled from regions with Ebola. Uh, now more money is going to that too. But there are still other diseases that we're, we're not worried about here. And because the people who get it are generally poor, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are not so interested in it either because their prospects of making uh, profits from products they're selling uh, are low. So I think you know we ought to be thinking about these areas as well. We ought to be thinking about doing the most good as well as thinking about what can I do that is a kind of a tribute to somebody I love or that relates to some particular personal interest of mine. Yeah. You know, I, I oftentimes relate it to a personal experience I had when I was running. Uh, so right out of college, I started a children's nonprofit that was helping young people with disabilities to play sports. And I had this kind of awakening moment. I was 23, and uh, the chairman of my board was the special advisor to the mayor at the time, and he'd been really ingrained in D.C. politics, philanthropy. And we sat down for breakfast one morning, and I was talking about some new plans that we had. And he asked me a question that I'll never forget. He just said, Andrew, are you satisfying your need to give or are you satisfying the greatest need? And he, I love that he phrased it as a question because then what it sparked to me is, well, what is the greatest need for this community? And it was really helpful in terms of where we allocated our own energy and how we were able to ultimately serve the most people with what it was that we were doing. Yeah, that's a that's a very important question. I think: uh, Are you meeting the greatest need, and are you doing the most good with with what you've got? Uh, I think those are questions we should all be asking ourselves before we give, uh, before we volunteer. Uh, is this the best thing I could be doing? And what do you have to say about when you talk about people who you know? It's like I, I there are organizations now that can help you to set up your your nonprofit in you know, a, a couple of minutes, and they'll follow the paperwork for you. And so, what are your thoughts about? kind of nonprofit inefficiency and, and how that industry is currently operating and where you'd like to see it go? Uh, there's such a huge number of nonprofits uh, in the United States now that it's pretty hard to, to keep track of it all. Uh, and that's why I rely on organizations like The Life You Can Save and Give Well that are able to do uh, research into this and really find the most effective nonprofits. Um, and by effective, I don't just mean the ones that have the lowest administrative expenses. A lot of people think uh, that that's the criterion that they want to look at. How much of the money I give will go for administration? How much will go to the programs? But that's, that's a misleading indicator because clearly if you cut back on your administration, you can have a very low proportion of money going for administration. But then you don't have the staff to actually supervise the programs and see that the programs are doing what you want them to. So it might be that you know you have 90% of the revenue going to the programs, but half the programs fail to achieve their objectives. Whereas if, if you doubled your staff and had only 80% going to the programs, then maybe three quarters of the programs would achieve their objectives. And the result would be that you had, uh, you know, sixty percent of the revenue was going to effective programs, whereas in the other case it was only forty-five percent. So you, you you really want to look at are the programs working? Are they getting people out of poverty? Are they preventing people dying? Are they restoring sight? 
you need those indicators. And and how much does it cost per life saved per person who whose site was restored? Those are the kinds of things that uh, it takes very detailed research to tell you. Um, but you can find the results of that on those websites like GiveWell and the Life You Can Save. Yeah, and I. I, I want to reemphasize again that going to one of these websites would be really valuable for the people who are listening. So you can go ahead and check them out because they're they're really brilliant at how they synthesize the information and make it super accessible. So if you're asking one of these questions that may seem kind of complex, like "Am I satisfying the greatest need with my with my giving with the energy I'm using to run my organization?" Um, having an answer to that really can be aided in just using some of these resources that that are available through GiveWell through the Effective Altruism Movement. And so I'd highly recommend just stopping in to, to get some basic information before you continue to, to give. And so, you know, Peter, you've talked about uh, a few of these causes that you're, you're currently focusing on. And I want to spend kind of the latter half of our, of our episode really focusing on extreme poverty and, and what's happening in the world and, and what people should really know about. And so if you could paint a picture, you know, in terms of you, you started focusing on this issue uh, many years ago, and I'm curious to hear... Uh, what has been some of the biggest kind of macro shifts that we've seen as it comes to extreme poverty around the world, say over the past 10 years, since you've really been uh, allocating so much energy to, to impacting this issue? Right. And there really is good news here. Um, so in the 10 years since uh, I first published the, the first edition of The Life You Can Save, uh, the figures that I quoted there for the number of children dying every year. These are figures from the United Nations Children's Emergency Fund, UNICEF. Uh, in, the, in the 2009 edition, it was 9.7 million children dying every year. That's children before their fifth birthday, and most of those from preventable poverty-related causes. In the new edition that's just out, it's 5.4 million. So that's been almost halved in just wow. 10 years, and that's pretty impressive progress, really. And, and of course, I'm not saying that this is because of uh, the book or aid or anything like that, even, you know, it's, it's a combination of factors. I think aid has played a role, but certainly economic development, countries like China that have become more prosperous in those 10 years, um, has also reduced poverty and saved lives. Uh, no question about that. Um, but, but it is good news. Uh, and the number of people in extreme poverty has also fallen in the same 10-year period from 1.4 billion to currently 736 million. So again, pretty close to being halved. Uh, and that's very encouraging too. You know, a lot of people, when they think about global poverty, they think, oh, it's just like a bottomless pit. It just you know, never changes, never gets better. But that's, that's a myth. It gets steadily better, uh, and we should be really proud of the progress we've the world has made. We should be proud of the fact that the proportion of people in going to bed hungry is falling steadily. The proportion of children dying is falling steadily. Uh, these are good things, but at the same time, of course, you know, five point four million children dying, most of them from preventable causes. That is something that we want to do something about and 700 million people living in extreme poverty is also something we need to keep working on so as long as these figures don't drop to very very low levels you know where maybe we feel we we have really covered all of the major sources and there's just a few pockets of extreme poverty that are really hard and difficult to reach you know i don't think we should feel that we've done all we should do or anything like that 
yeah, it was, it was, when you mentioned that, I, I remember I was in Kenya this past year for, for a speaking, uh, for a speaking gig. And I met a woman from the United Nations who was working on their, their measles initiatives in Africa. And she was talking about seeing the, the vaccination kind of, uh, propaganda in the United States and basically seeing how close they are to completely eradicating this disease that has killed so many and seeing it get to a place where people haven't really experienced the issues or seen it or seen how it's impact people and, and what that's done to kind of remove some of the, the, the pressure to, to act, to actually do that. And so, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get to a place where we're having that conversation maybe one day and we'll, we'll power through it. But, um, but so, so you're talking about this, this positive shift in terms of how things are, are certainly progressing and, um, you know, those statistics certainly paint a picture. And I'm curious, for people who are curious, so what has been happening that has facilitated that shift in terms of the application of aid uh, in these places? What has been the work that has been uh, having the greatest impact on alleviating global poverty? And has there been any shift in the application of aid and what we've learned uh, in terms of uplifting people out of extreme poverty, whether that's through you know, focusing funding on women or other things that you've seen that have really had a big impact? Right. Well, certainly some of the health measures have, and you've just mentioned the uh, the measles campaign, which was a, a worldwide global alliance for, for vaccination. Uh, and that's that's measles was a big killer. It's a, still a killer, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, I've talked about malaria. That's another big killer. Providing safe drinking water uh, prevents children getting diarrhea, and that can be fatal for uh, weak children. Uh, providing some treatment for diarrhea, a very simple oral rehydration therapy to stop people, uh, children getting dehydrated when they get diarrhea, that helps too. So, so these very inexpensive health initiatives do matter. But in terms of getting people out of poverty, uh, there are other initiatives that we're taking now that have been tested and shown to be effective. For example, there's an organization called Village Enterprise that uh, goes into villages where people are very poor, finds uh, poor members of those villages, uh, often women, um, and gives them assistance in starting a small business, uh, maybe gives them some chickens so that they can sell eggs, maybe gives them some cash so that they can set up a little a little shop, buy some, some goods to sell, uh, a whole range of different things. But as well as just giving them the asset, it gives them training in how to run a small business because many of them have no experience in doing that. It helps them in the village set up a, a support group so that uh, there are other women. So there's a pool of people with whom you can discuss the problems you're having and also perhaps pool some of your savings so that you have a little fund in case you need to tie, be tidied over in some uh, harder times. Uh, and it's been shown that this combination of measures is effective in helping people to get end up with a higher income, with uh, better nutrition, get their children to go to school more, uh, and, of course, empowering women. And uh, empowering women remains one of the key elements in reducing extreme poverty. That's really powerful. And, and can you speak a little bit? So you talked about sometimes the focus on women. And are you familiar with any of the statistics about kind of, like, I think it's called like the Girl Up Initiative, but the impact of investing, you know, in those, those female-led social enterprises versus money that's going to men or aware of that can you speak to any of that i can't give you statistics on the difference that 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 makes there are different there are a variety of studies um certainly there is there is evidence that uh helping women uh, as in this the work that village enterprise does um is a is a good way to 
get people out of poverty, but I'm, I'm not saying that uh, helping men doesn't work either. Again, you have to look at local circumstances and different cultures and so on. Um, one thing that clearly uh, does relate to women is uh, the age at which they have children and the number of children that they're going to have. Uh, and that relates to the amount of education that they have. So in terms of, of educating girls, that makes a big difference to uh, those factors about their child rearing, childbearing. And uh, that in turn makes a, a big difference to the health of their children, children who are more widely spaced, children that they don't have too young, um, grow up uh, better, have, have better health and are likely to do better. And it's also, I think, relevant to the rate at which population grows in some sub, sub let me say that again, in some sub-Saharan African countries where uh, the rate of population growth does put great demands on the country to, do, to develop infrastructure, you know, to build more schools because population is growing rapidly, to uh, increase roads, uh, uh, a, whole lot of, a whole lot of issues that are harder to solve if population is growing very fast. So educating girls is definitely uh, a win-win for the girls, for their children, and for the society as a whole. And Peter, I, I want to kind of just open this up and see, is there anything else that the people who are listening and people that you are hoping to inspire to action, to understand this issue at a deeper level, what would you want them to know about extreme poverty, about how many people it's impacting, the impact it's having in the world, and also what's possible in terms of where we can take it in our lifetime? The main thing I want them to know is that this is an issue on which each of us can have an impact. And it's a mistake to think this is such a big problem that I can't do anything. In fact, we can all do something and what we can do can have a significant difference, a significant impact on the lives of real living people elsewhere in the world. And uh, I also want people to know that there is information online about the things you can do, uh, the best way to do it. Uh, and I think one good way of looking at that is to go to the website of The Life You Can Save, which, you know, full disclosure, is an organization that I founded after the first edition of the book was published uh, and has now grown and is publishing the new edition as making it available free online as an ebook or audiobook download. And you can get a lot of information there. And right at the back, you can find a section on what you can do, what are the most effective things you can do to make a difference. They include things like pledging to give some percentage of your income, even if you just start at 1% to effective charities, uh, uh, spreading the word about this to, to your friends and others, and um, getting the book and telling your friends about the book and telling them that they too can get their own free copy and help to spread that too. And one thing I'm curious about as well is, you know, as an entrepreneur and you know, my, I have a family of entrepreneurs, my wife is as well. And what is the role of, of companies as we look at fighting extreme poverty, whether that's people who are running companies, whether that's through CSR, corporate social responsibility initiatives, and how do you speak to them? You know, are you focused more on the individuals and shifting their own mindset to kind of uh, really empower more, more giving and more engagement? Do you think about that corporate aspect and the social enterprise aspect? Oh, oh I do, yes. I, I yeah. think about that, um, and I speak both to individuals and companies. And in the book, I give some examples of companies that have taken an ethical stance that, for example, uh, I talk about a, 
a stock trading company called Vivcourt. It's an Australian company where at the end of the year, if the, if the company has done well, the employees get a bonus as, as they do over here. But they get a, a twofold bonus. Uh, half of their bonus goes to them in, in cash and the other half goes to a charitable fund, but they get to decide where it goes. So to, among, among a number of effective charities. And, and the interesting thing is that that's really been good for morale in the company because people in a, in a stock trading firm, basically they're, they're, they're not sort of growing food or you know, helping people get better. They're, they're just in the money business. Um, and to give them a sense that they're not actually just making money for themselves and the, and the company's clients, but that they are also contributing to helping some of the poorest people in the world um, makes a difference in their lives. Uh, and I think a lot of companies can learn from this example and think how to motivate your employees to want to do good, to want to stay with your company, give them something more than cash. Yes, they, they want income, but most human beings want more than that. And uh, this has proven to be a good way of doing that. Yeah, and even speaking as a millennial myself, there's there's very well researched kind of uh, data on especially millennials, Gen Z, and recruitment and retention based off of uh, companies that have a well articulated corporate social responsibility initiative within the engagement and the number of people who value that is essential to their work is only growing. Uh, with the coming generations. So, Absolutely. And I, I see that at Princeton all the time with my students. Um, you know, m- most of them do want to do some good with their lives. They don't just want to earn enough money to have a comfortable lifestyle. You know, and you're, you're on the front lines there. And so, you know, as a professor at Princeton, I'm curious to hear um, what has been and how long have you been teaching at Princeton? I've been here 20 years now. It's been been a long spell, actually. I sort of came here in 1999. Um, I'm now, I was full-time for a few years. I'm now splitting my time between Princeton and Melbourne, Australia, which is uh, where my children and grandchildren are. So I'm, I'm back there for part of each year. But uh, yeah, it's been a long time. I've seen different generations of students come and go, but uh, this generation is certainly interested in these questions about what to do with their lives. Well, that's, that's exactly what I wanted to ask is, as you've been there for the past 20 years, what has been the shift that you've seen in your students as it relates to this kind of global consciousness, this, this desire to give back, to have an impact? How has it shifted in your students uh, generationally? Well, there are always some students who are interested in that, certainly. Uh, but I think perhaps dating from the the global financial crisis and uh, what followed that, I think perhaps we've seen an increase in people saying, well, you know, money really isn't the only thing that it's about. Money can go bad. Um, and I want to think about what, how to do the most good in my life. And I've, I've had, you know, that's also coincided with the rise of the effective altruism movement. And I've had more students interested in that. I've had students you know, students have organized an effective altruism society here at Princeton. So uh, that's that's become a bigger thing over the past 10 years. That's brilliant. Love to see it. And uh, yeah, as an entrepreneur myself, I definitely feel the shift. And so, Peter, as, as you, you know, sit at this point in your career already having had such a tremendous impact, um, when you look at where you're going next, re-releasing this book, um, at the end of your career, what is it that you would like people to look back on your work and say that you did? I'd like 
people to say uh, he had an impact. He was concerned to make the world a better place, and he succeeded in using his position in ethics, my position as a professor at Princeton University, using that not just to get people to think more, as philosophers typically do, but also in getting them to think about the really important issues and, and the issues in which thinking about them can lead to action. Uh, and I think it's really important that philosophy changes lives. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. They think of it as some remote academic uh, activity. But uh, I've seen it again and again. I've even done research uh, showing it that philosophy does change lives uh, and changes lives for the better, both for the people living them, but also f- for the other people that they're affecting in the world. And and I think my final question is, so as someone who, who kind of found for the first time in my life a sense of purpose and fulfillment through the service of others, I'm curious, as a utilitarian, uh, viewing these subjects, how do you factor in and, and how has your work and positively impacting the lives of so many around the world impacted your own sense of fulfillment and, and you know, kind feelings in your own life? And how do we factor that in in all of this? Because there's, there's pretty much a direct tie, right, between subjective well-being and, and helping others oftentimes. And so how do you, how do you reconcile that in, um, you know, motivating people to give is like the, the intrinsic um, kind of boost that, that happens when we're supporting others. Yeah, it's an interesting fact about human nature, and it's been uh, documented now in many different uh, psychological studies that uh, giving does make people feel better about themselves. Uh, it gives them a boost. Uh, it gives them a sense of fulfillment and purpose in their lives. Uh, and I certainly describe that and describe some of those studies in the new edition of The Life You Can Save. Uh, it's an important part of the general discussion because I don't want to convince people that you know this is just some duty or obligation that they have to do or else they're really bad people. I want to get people to think of it as uh, something that is that is good for them uh, as well as good for others and will give a, a, a different feeling tone to their life and a, and a positive one and a purpose and make them get up uh, in the morning thinking, you know, what are the things that I can achieve, not just for myself, but for the world today? Uh, and that's a great feeling. And it certainly made a, a huge positive difference to my own life. And so as people are heading into the holidays here, and we are, you know, T minus two weeks from Black Friday here and uh, Giving Tuesday. So as people are heading into this, this you know, consumer uh, spending bonanza, what is it that you want them to know? What is it that you want them to consider as they're, they're getting ready to depart <laughs> or to, to, uh, to let go of a lot of their funds and, and spend a lot of money? Uh, what would you like them to consider before they do that? Obviously, I'd like them to consider uh, Giving Tuesday uh, before they spend all their money on Black Friday. Uh, and, but that fits with what we were just saying, because again, there's, there's good research showing that consumer goods don't really contribute to lasting happiness. Uh, they might make you feel good for a little while. You've got something new, some novelty, but uh, we adjust to it and our, our happiness levels fall back quite quickly. Whereas uh, giving and the sense of fulfillment you get from making the world a better place is something that lasts. So I'd like people to think of that. Yeah. You know, we actually had, I don't know if you know, Tom Gilovich from Cornell, who uh, did was one of the primary researchers on 
investing in experiences over things and we had a long right. recently. It was yep. really powerful. But, uh, but Peter, you know, again, it's, we talked about how people look at your work and, uh, as someone who got into the world of nonprofits when I was uh, 22 years old and being introduced to your work, uh, really right around the time that you, you put, uh, the life you can save into the world. I'm just really honored to have had you on the show. Grateful for the, the work that you've done. It's, it's had a positive impact on my career and helped me to, to just have a, a deeper sense of, of purpose and understanding of, of why and how I'm doing what I'm doing. I really hope that everyone who's doing this just takes the time to, to potentially pick up your book when it comes out on uh, December 3rd for the re-release and just find a deeper answer of why it is that you are giving and how you want to do that. That's, that's most aligned with your values and, and having the greatest impact. So any, any parting words for our listeners, Peter? Uh, I want to thank you first, Andrew, for the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Uh, that's been wonderful, and I'm sure you are doing good through through that. Um, but as I said, I just want—I'd uh, like your listeners to pause and reflect about their life, about how they've been living it. Uh, have they just been going along with some path that was convenient earlier in their life that they haven't really thought about very much, or are they really? Uh, consciously thinking about the, the way their life is going. Uh, Socrates said, the unexamined life is, is not worth living. Um, mm. That's maybe pretty tough, but I do think that pausing to examine your life now and again and to say, am I living in accord with my most important values is a very good thing to do. Yeah, what is, what is the thing happening today that I'm not acting on that I'll look back you know, 10, 20 years from now and regret and you know, when you stop listening to this podcast and go back to what you're doing, we have a chance to, to take action. And so thank you for for the, the wisdom. And I hope that it does inspire many, many people listening to action. And very grateful for your time again. And uh, for everyone who's uh, listening, we will have uh, links out to the book as well as the uh, all of uh, the organizations that Peter mentioned uh, throughout the show and so uh, when we launch this on december 3rd just keep an eye out for the show notes make sure you check all these things out and peter again thank you so much for joining us on what's the big idea well thanks so much for the time peter okay thank you andrew good to talk to you